0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's Season 5 of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. On this
4: edition of The Literary Life, join Ruth Dickey, the Executive Director of the National Book Foundation, and a live audience at Books and Books, for an evening honoring Alexandra Chang, Joseph Han, Kristal Hanna Kim, and Alyssa song Dej, all recipients of the 5 Under 35 prize, selected by past National Book Award winners and finalists, or previous 5 Under 35 honorees. Unfortunately, Claire Sistanovich was not able to make the trip to Carl Gable's. This award recognizes young debut fiction writers whose work will undoubtedly be with us for many, many years to come. So each year, five debut fiction authors under the age of 35 whose work is guaranteed to leave a lasting impression on the literary landscape are selected by previous honorees of the Foundation. Since the program's inception, we've gotten to celebrate folks like Charles Yu, Brian Washington, Karen Russell, and so, so many more last spring these four outstanding authors on stage joined the five under 35 family sadly our fifth honoree claire sustanovich was unable to join us in miami tonight so we'll just have to get the band back together soon (laughs) Um, our tremendous thanks to the brilliant 2022 selector authors anthony dore minjin lee jason mott julia phillips and azarine vanderliet Olumi, who picked these amazing authors that you will meet tonight Before I introduce you properly to Alexandra, Joseph, Crystal, and Alyssa, a quick lay of the land for tonight's program, each author will read from their book, and then I'll ask them a few questions, and finally, we'll save time for a couple questions from the audience. The authors are graciously staying after the event for a book signing, so if you haven't already, I warmly encourage you to buy all four of their books so that you can get them signed, with many thanks to our partner bookseller, Books and Books. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to please also sign up for the National Book Foundation's newsletter. We'll leave a sign-up sheet. Um, We're lucky to come to the Miami area and to cities around the country year-round, and we'd love to keep you posted on where we'll be and what we're reading. And now, I'm so delighted to introduce you to this incredible group of authors. Alexandra Chang is the author of Days of Distraction. Her writing has appeared in Zoetrope, All Story, The New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, Guernica, and Harvard Review, among other publications. She has a short story collection we are eagerly awaiting, Tomb Sweeping, which is forthcoming in 2023. Joseph Han was born in Korea and raised in Hawaii. He is an editor for the West region of Joyland Magazine and a recipient of a Kundiman Fellowship in Fiction. His writing has appeared in... Nat, Brute, Catapult, Pleiades Magazine, Platypus Short Stories, and McSweeney's. He received a PhD in English and Creative Writing at the University of Hawaii at Manaoa and is currently living in Honolulu. Crystal Hana Kim, is the author of If You Leave Me, a booklist editor's choice title, and named Best Book of 2018 by over a dozen publications. She was a 2021 Jerome Hill Artist Finalist, a 2017 Penn America Robert J. Dow Short Story Prize winner, and has received scholarships from Breadloaf Writers Conference, Sewanee Writers Conference, Gentel, and Hedgebrook. Her work has been published in Elle Magazine, The Paris Review, Guernica, and elsewhere. She's a contributing editor at Apogee Journal. Crystal lives in Brooklyn, New York, and teaches at Columbia University and Randolph College's MFA program. And last but not least, Alyssa Sonsiride is an editor at Electric Literature. Her short fiction can be found at Story Quarterly, Indiana Review, The Offing, and Columbia, a journal of light and art. She has been honored and supported by Yaddo, Ucross Foundation, the Ragdale Foundation, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, the Vermont Studio Center, and the Massachusetts Cultural Council. She lives in Philadelphia. And now we can all look forward to hearing them read a little bit of their work. So I'll turn it over (laughs) to Crystal first.
2: Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. (laughs) How are y'all doing? Good, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much to Books and Books and the Miami Book Fair and the National Book Foundation. And thank you all for coming. This is really exciting for us to all get together. Um, I'm going to be reading from If You Leave Me. I used to read from the beginning, but I'm trying to spice it up. So I'm going (laughs) to read from later on in the novel. But the novel is about five narrators who are living during and after the Korean War. And it follows the trajectory of their lives and how they are impacted by the war and the aftermath. Uh, but w- the main character, the heart of the novel, is is a character named Hemi. She's 16 when the war breaks out. But in the section that I'm going to be reading, she has married um, another narrator named Who. It's 1963. She has three daughters. And she is thinking about uh, her life as a mother, and her life and the ways in it's been constrained because of the choices she's had to make. So Hemi, 1963. I bled yesterday from the cuts on my hands, a careless knife, a week ago tripping over the stones Mida had placed around the house in the shape of clouds. The sharp taste when I bit down on my tongue the morning Kyung-Wen had left, like the discarded sea ration tins we used to lick during the war. He had once dared me to touch the silver sharp edge with the tip of my tongue, a blood red river. I paced the girls room, trying to count the days since I had last bled between my legs. Mira, surrounded by colored pencils, mumbled at her picture. When I passed, she tugged at the hem of my humbug skirt. I want a cookie. She held up a wet palm foam of crumbs. More for me? Her hair, the oily stink of it, made me want to retch. I don't have any right now. My stomach roiled at the sudden flare of smells, grease, spit, Boiled beef bones from the kitchen, a vile sweetness I couldn't place. The thought of the outhouse soured my spit, too. Mommy needs to go outside. Mira grabbed my leg. Take me. Sitting at my feet, she looked tiny, my youngest, a dreamer. I must have been dreaming, too. Months. Months since I had bled. Mommy? Mira toddled after me. I staggered to the tree in the backyard and wretched, Green potato sprigs and white rice, my early breakfast. The acid stench so nauseating I had to lean against the stone wall. The air itself seemed to knock me unsteady. I slid to the ground. Mira wrinkled her nose and hid her face behind her hands. "Mommy sick? Shush, please. I laid my cheek against the cool stones. I can't think. You're going to be all right? She stroked my ankle. I don't think so. I cupped her hand with my own. Even gentle Mira had left me suffocating for a year after she was born. I sank in guilt, confusion, fear. How unlike the other mothers I seemed to be. I had never felt more captive than following childbirth. How could I have not kept track of my bleeding for months now, I had been wretched with mourning. My mind, like spiderlings bursting from their egg sac, scattering in all directions, forgetting what I was doing even when I was doing nothing. I willed myself to bleed. I spat a thick scum of mucus. Look, Rita pried a rock from under one of the tree's roots. It was gray with a small white center, like a nipple or flower. I bring in house our damn house. I walked the length of every room every day with Mira following, sleeping, slung on my back, hip or chest. I treaded the wooden floors of our scythe shaped home. When Chien and Sodi returned from school, I made dinner. When Chisu returned from work, I made more dinner. When I felt as though my mind would disappear. I ate or walked or stared at the sky through the leaves of our one lonely tree. I didn't allow myself to think about Kyung Hwan. I was like a mouse in an earthen jar, crawling up sloped, impossible walls. What if I ran away right now? I pointed to the roads beyond the stone wall. What would you do if I left Mida? She rolled the rock between my toes, up my foot. Where are you going? I'm hungry. I wanted to cry and scream and burn the fear that roiled inside me. The air felt all wrong, too thin or too thick for me to breathe. I picked up Mida and threw her stone into my vomit. I'm going to tell you a secret. She smiled like an idiot child and grasped my nose. I think I'm pregnant. Thank you. (laughs)
3: my name is Alyssa. um i'm going to read a little bit from chapter two of my novel little rabbit um you don't need a lot of setup i think just the um this the narrator met this guy at a residency and now she's into him um so (laughs) um okay um chapter two the question of sleeping with the choreographer of what it would feel like to touch him knocked around inside of me until winter broke into rainy New England spring. Finally, I came up with an excuse. I convinced a friend at a small cultural magazine to let me profile the choreographer and his dance company. No one would pay me, and I'd have to buy my own train ticket and stay on my friend's couch in Sunset Park. But it gave me a reason to email him that I was coming. Good, he wrote back. You can stop in on a rehearsal. At some point during the train ride down the coast, the cool spring switched to sudden muggy pre-summer, a bubble of heat and humidity that only grew overnight as I sweated and turned on my friend's stiff fold-out couch. The heat dampened my anticipation, muddling my expectations with my own gross humanity. I had to take three different trains to get to the choreographer's rehearsal space. And during the journey, I absorbed vast quantities of the city's grime and dirt. By the time I got to the school turned performing arts studio, I'd sweated through my linen blouse, my denim shorts, transformed into a swamp of a human being. The cool walls of the old brownstone building mixed with the heat so the air turned strange and clammy. Walking through the long halls of identical doors, I felt like a child again, suddenly oversized, wandering until I found the sounds of music and counting. I could hear his voice, the sounds of his hands clapping. Wiping my sweaty palms on my shorts, I grabbed the door handle and pulled. The rehearsal space still felt like a classroom, the walls a different color where the chalkboards had been. Cool air rattled through new aluminum vents. Six or seven glorious bodies moved through the middle of the room, cutting around each other, stopping, stretching, lifting, and throwing one dancer to another. Even though I'd never seen anyone else do the things they did, their bending, twisting feats made them seem more human like they'd found new doors into how to be a body. The choreographer stood in front of them all, watching them, instructing. He wore a white t-shirt, soft black pants, his arms wrapped around his torso as he focused. I could see the line of his waist, the lean muscles that still bound him. More point with the chin, he called. You should be leading with the sternum, carry the motion through. I closed the door silently behind me, but he still noticed and walked over. Could you take off your shoes, he asked, looking at my dirty white sneakers. A soft matte material covered the oddly springy floor. Sorry, I said, toying them off. They changed as soon as you walked in the door, he said, looking at the dancers, just a millimeter tighter. I'm sorry, I repeated. No, it's the permanent problem of a performer, he said. It's just too bad. You'll never see how they move when we're alone. He went back to his spot watching the dancers and shouting out commands, suggestions so specific I couldn't follow. The song ended, the performers hitting their last pose. Good work, he said, clapping. Now let's get Jackie, TJ, and Zach for the trio. Jackie was the dancer with the long brown hair. Today, she'd wrapped it up tight in a ballerina bun and dressed her body in a white leotard made of tissue-thin fabric. I stared at the muscles winging across her back, her thighs, until I felt absurd, goggle-eyed. She turned away from me, her forearms up against the back of her head with her mouth pressed against her bicep. Her right leg was up and the two male dancers crowded the floor around her, one taking her raised calf in his palm. They held still for a beat, turned into living Grecian statues. Then the music began and they sprang to life, one male dancer lifting Jackie, their backs to each other, then tossing her to the other who caught her by the waist. She seemed trapped for a moment with her legs stiff behind her before swirling free, the world turned by her hips. Stop, the choreographer called. Jackie, you need to be initiating the movement more from the pelvic bowl. He crossed the room to stand next to her, pointing his thumbs at his own hips. Imagine you have two strings tugging your iliac crests. He swiveled to demonstrate, shifting the balance of his knees. Jackie copied him. I reached into my leather satchel for water, but I didn't have any. I felt a pen. Oh, notes, I've remembered. I should be taking notes. And when you hit the right elbow, hit it. She struck a pose with her right elbow up and out. You need to point a little higher. He touched her elbow with two fingers, adjusting, and look a little more this way. The fingers went to her cheek, guiding her face. So you're looking stage left, right there, right at her. They locked on me, the choreographer pointing. Jackie smiled, and I gave a small, stupid wave. Once rehearsal finished, the dancers fell upon their bags, gathering their empty Tupperware, their water bottles, as they reassembled their outside selves. I stood in the corner watching everyone leave. Good work, the choreographer said. See you Wednesday. The last one, TJ, left, and then the choreographer and I were alone. He stood by the door at the opposite end of the room. Shall we? Oh, stop there. Thank you all.
1: everyone Um, it's so nice to see you here so just a little context this nuclear family is about the Cho family who runs a franchise of plate lunch restaurants in Hawaii who face backlash when their eldest son Jacob is caught on international news trying and failing to cross the Korean demilitarized zone not knowing that he's been possessed by his grandfather's ghost, who requires Jacob's body to cross the spiritual barrier that coincides with the physical one dividing the peninsula. So Jacob falls flat on his face on the slab dividing the Koreas. And the chapter that I'll read for you today is about what happens to the grandfather ghost. An itch started in the corner of Taewoo's eye he couldn't reach his sight on the reward. For all this time trying to actually make it, how quick he forgot the risk. A slip at the last second, he was so close to making it. Caught by the neck and forearms, a vice clamped onto Teu and wouldn't let go. He thought the wall would have decapitated him and separated his body parts. But who was he kidding? That's pretty much what happened. Being a part of the wall, Tewu felt connected to its vibration, crawling toward him from all sides. A hum singed slowly into his arms and neck, steady and like a low groan that stretched across the land. And there he was caught in the middle of it, groaning himself. His shoulders constantly ached, his lower back throbbing, knees driving into the ground to remind him of his failure. Brought down at last with nowhere else to go. He felt more foolish for wondering how long he'd remained there as if anything would change. Nothing, he guessed, when the hum remained and turned needle sharp, long as the dotted lines traced across maps of this peninsula. They jabbed through the corner of his eyes, more behind his ears, another up his nose, to puncture Teo's mind. So the only things left were thoughts of how fucking itchy everything was, how awful. Teo screamed and slobbered for weeks, though his cries turned to laughter when he ceased to feel pain. And Wu laughed until it hurt, until he cried, and coughed up another laugh, and another. It tickled him to be caught in the wall. And Wu laughed as loud as he could, now that he was quite in on the joke. The commotion began to trouble the dead in the neighboring village, Taesongdong, where many who watched the jumping festival settled because of its proximity to the north. The dead villagers were mistaken about where the noise came from, having first believed it was the rooster known to eat cigarette butts from tin cans. They followed the source of wailing to Teu's posterior, which they confirmed belonged to Teu when they approached the invisible wall. Some were the closest they'd ever been since the antics of the jumping festival, which stopped being fun when everyone wanted to climb for a chance, realized that it never looked good. They laughed at Wu and took turns spanking him, seeing who could get a louder yelp. The dead villagers rounded up more of the dead, saying there was a revival of the King Fools Festival, where this time everyone could get involved. The spanking was more frequent in the first few months, and while weekends were the most popular, the visits were getting slower. The festival lost its novelty, and the crowd of dead laughing together at Teu's misfortune dispersed. It became a part of most of the dead's routines. The dead took out their frustration on Teu, never failing to give him their hardest slap. Others treated the occasion as visiting hours, boring Teu with stories for ages. The worst ones broke the rule against anything other than slapping by sneaking in a when no one was watching. At least the itching had stopped. Despite all the hollering, no dead from the north came down to Teo's surprise and misfortune. Thank you.
5: I'm um, just very excited to be here. And thank you all for being here listening to us today. Uh, This book, Days of Distraction, follows a woman in her early-ish, mid-20s who's going through all of the kinds of challenges that one does go through in their early to mid-20s. She is feeling a bit lost and deeply ambivalent about work, her relationships, her life. And I'm going to read a section from the first uh, chapter, and she's working as a tech journalist in San Francisco, and it's 2012. Mm. Open plan offices are conceptually cool, but they do not work cool. Everyone is visible to everyone, just another way to breed competition, plus worry, disturbance, and procrastination. If you don't wear noise-canceling headphones, then you are bombarded with office noises. The typing, the chewing, the groaning, the mumbling, the complaining, the tapping, the squeaking, the bickering. Then too, there's the ever-present anxiety about somebody flying over to talk, and if they approach from behind, it's unexpected and frightening. And if they approach from ahead, you have to watch them coming across the space as your anxiety and anticipation build. What do they want? And what is the best position in which to talk? Do you stand up once they've arrived? Do they squat as you sit? Do you stare up at them from your chair? And how best to end the conversation? Do you say, see you later, though you can technically see them at all times across the open (laughs) expanse? Do you say goodbye? Do they walk away with no formalities? Do they make a grand exit? To avoid answering such questions, there is the work chat room, Parley. Even though we are all physically in the same room, it's quieter, easier, and more efficient to communicate through the screen, through Parley. When I first got my work computer, I had misread it as Parsley, which I still <laughs> consider a better software company name.
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> then I thought it was Parley, uh, parlay, as in to take one thing and transform it into something better. It didn't take long, however, to realize it was Parley. Did you see what so-and-so said on Parley? Get on Parley. We need to talk. The business people are going crazy on Parley right now. Why isn't anybody responding to my question, Parley? The original definition is a discussion between opposing sides or enemies over the terms of a truce. This offers a decent analogy for office communication. (laughs) Especially true of our publication, which is divided down the middle between web and print. We are all on the same floor, but web people sit in a room on one side and print people plus management sit on the other side. Doors, the restrooms, and a long hallway divide the two sides. The Berlin Hall, everyone calls it. (laughs) Jay dislikes that I have Parley notifications on at all times. It is constantly buzzing during dinner, during TV time, and especially these days as our group prepares for the yearly consumer electronics show, CES, in Vegas. The problem is my guilt. It never seems as though I'm doing enough And if I do more, respond faster, I think maybe somebody important will notice and I will be lifted out of this weight. Nobody likes to go. All of us complain during the weeks ahead. CES is four long days of Las Vegas product porn. We are bombarded with pointless gadget after pointless gadget in the crowded convention center. We wait in lines to get into rooms with who knows what kind of announcements. We take countless meetings with overeager PR people. We type up stories on dirty carpeted floors. We go to pseudo parties at night. We test our luck in casinos. We drink too much and we get very little sleep. As Jasmine says, it's a nightmare hellscape, but at least we're in it together. Yet beneath our snark is desire. We want to find the next piece of technology that will make us better, give us purpose, fill our voids. We are looking for what we can show the world and say, here, this is the future. And the future is bright. And I'll end there.
4: Thank you beautiful. Thank you so much. So I have one question for each of you. And then I'll have questions for all of you. And then we'll have questions from y'all. Um, and Alexandra, let's start with you. Um, I'd love to know, how did you land on the fragmented form of your novel between Alexandra, the narrator's past and present? oh (laughs) (laughs) wait could you repeat
5: the last half?
4: yeah how did you land on the fragmented form of your novel between past and present okay
5: Uh, I've never thought about the fragments between past and I've thought about the fragments as their own kind of thing and then it kind of does weave I guess the past and present is uh, woven together through fragments but for me the fragments first of all came somewhat naturally in the writing process. <laughs> I was writing in spurts uh, when I first started this <laughs> novel. <laughs> when I first started this novel, I uh, was just writing in these little bits, sections. I was calling them snippets. And I kept on writing in that form, mm-hmm. in these like little breaks between classes, uh, and then naturally gravitated to that style of writing. Um, I think about Lydia Davis a lot. She talks about the fragmented form and she talks about how all these writers who have, you know, historically been interested in the fragment, um, have described it and one who I do not remember now, described it as writing beginnings and loving to write the beginnings mm-hmm. of stories. Mm-hmm. And that's how it felt to me, like each scene, each bit of dialogue, each um, kind of like musing was a new beginning and I could wrap it up pretty quickly and move on to the next one. Uh, And then as I started to have more of these fragments, I saw that the form itself also mirrored this um, the sense of self-doubt, the sense of discovery and the sense of distraction uh, (laughs) that this narrator is going through in her life and started to actually create more structure around the fragments themselves. Uh, So the past gets woven in like her childhood, um, different kinds of, I guess, memories that she's having pretty naturally through the fragmented form because there's just so much malleability and flexibility when you have all this white space. Uh, So once that's established, I got to play a lot uh, and very easily, not only weave in like, past memories, but weave in like, historical research uh, between like what's going on in the narrator's present day. So, yeah, I love fragmented novels and I love writing in fragmented form too. Yeah. <laughs> Highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's so beautiful, thank you. Joseph, I'd love to hear you talk about what does a nuclear family mean to you and to the characters of the shows?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I love a good pun. Um, <laughs> and so nuclear also refers to our nuclear anxiety when, when thinking about Korea and its constant state of war and our orientation toward um, North Korea as always looming as uh, the bearer of our future demise. Um, but I always put that into a larger context where the threat is already here in the form of rampant militarization across the globe by the US Um, and so it also plays into why there's the backlash toward the Cho family when they have suspected ties to the north though a lot of Korean people have have family genealogies to the to what is now known as North Korea um, and have family who remain still in the northern peninsula and so I think the nuclear family framework is very limiting in its scope, when it only creates the parameter for our responsibilities extended toward those in our immediate household. Um, and that, of course, extends to our ideas of ownership and property and how we need to think of the nuclear family framework in more capacious ways. And Extend beyond who we claim as family, beyond blood relations, to those who are forgotten in our communities. And in the context of the Korean Peninsula, those are our brothers and sisters, aunties, uncles, uh, relatives um, who we've turned our backs on and who we've forgotten, who also wish to reunite with their loved ones in the South in the same way that. Many elders who are passing, who have endured these long-lasting separations (laughs) since the Korean War are passing with that wish. And so this book is about how these legacies continue and how that wish is carried in future generations and ever more families as we come together.
4: Oh, thank you so much for that. i love thinking about family Mm -hmm. capaciously. Alyssa, I'd love to hear you talk about why dance and learning to write and watch movement shaped the story of Bodies of Desire in Little Rabbit.
3: Sure, yeah. Um, Why? Why and how? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, so yeah, thank you for that question. Mm -hmm. Just to sort of back up a little bit, um, I got the idea to write about dance from being at a residency and seeing um, a choreographer working with dancers live. And I was really interested in how that language was so different than the language that I used to write. And also how it was an art form that kind of felt as far from writing as possible. It was like, you know, you're, it's very temporally oriented. It's like live dance is different than watching recorded dance. And it was just this like feeling in my body seeing it that I had never experienced um, before and that felt just like incredibly amazing to me and to use the body to make art um, just seemed way, way better than what I was trying to do when I was at the residency. <laughs> um, and I was like really jealous and so I wanted to try to get as close to it as I could. And, uh, and my thought process was that like, wow, this is as far from writing as you can possibly be. This is like impossible to approach. And since this is impossible, I'm going to try to do it because I <laughs> I like, like to make my life hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and that I realized also that I needed to kind of focus less on the sort of exteriority of what was happening in the actual movements in the scene, and to think about how it was affecting, like, ma- the main character, like what her internal experience was, and that kind of led me to start thinking about how we experience the world through our bodies, like internally, and finding a different kind of language beyond just like a outside physical description. Yeah, uh,
4: totally fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, Crystal, you spoke in one interview about translating your grandmother's poems from Korean into English, and I'd love to hear you speak to the art of translation within, if you leave me, translating the history during and after the Korean War for readers both in and outside the Korean diaspora. Oh.
2: Thank you so much for that question. All these questions are so good. <laughs> and I think ones that we've not heard before, right? Mm. Um, I think translation is so is such an interesting art. And there's an impossibility of bridging uh, the gap, right? There's always going to be some sort of gap that is created when you're trying to translate, when you're trying to capture an experience, when you're trying to capture a story. And for me, with this novel, it starts in the Green War, and I try to capture at least five individuals experiences of living through the Korean War and I tried to make their backgrounds different right there's Hemi is a 16 year old in the beginning from an impoverished family with a widowed mother and a brother or who is ill and that constricts the choices that she's able to make for herself and compared to that her younger brother just because even though they have a similar family background just because he is male there are greater opportunities and so by creating these different characters i was trying to capture as m- as many different experiences as possible but i also know that translation of a s of an experience is is, is so impossible in many ways right and um all I can do is try to create empathy for these characters and to write with write about them with love and hope that that comes across to the reader and my grandmother my maternal grandmother actually she she came to America when I was born to take care of me. She stayed here for many years kind of out uh, lasting her visa and She didn't know any English when she came here. She was always constantly in the work of translating. And she was constantly working to provide a better life for me. So when I was older and I realized that I wanted to write a novel, I wanted to capture her voice. uh, And I wanted to capture a part of her story. And then it became fictionalized, of course. Uh, And so it it was such a great pleasure to. Connect over language later on in her life because she actually only went to middle school. She had never gone in a high school education, but in her 80s she started writing poetry uh, through a community center and she started getting published in these literary magazines in Korea and found this great deep love for literature so late in her life. So it was important to me then to turn to the act of translation to try to to get to know her better uh because translating her creative voice allowed me to um understand her emotions in a a completely new way oh that's beautiful thank you for sharing
4: that all right this is a question for everyone i'd love to know how, what went through your mind or what was your reaction when you found out you had been selected for 535, <laughs> And what has surprised you most since that moment as, on this journey? Whoever would like to jump in first. S- so I think we
5: probably share this experience, or some of us do, where I got a call from a number I didn't recognize and didn't pick it up. <laughs> uh, because I don't pick up calls from numbers I don't recognize, uh, then heard the message and was like, okay, I think this is real. And I was also, um, I had been bedridden with COVID at that time. Um, So I was like, Mildly delusional. <laughs> so I think my initial reaction was just like, "Is this real? What is happening?" Uh, and the phone call was over very quickly. So <laughs> oh, afterwards, I was like processing. So I think shock, shock, and disbelief. Uh, and then maybe like 15 minutes later, like I think that did just happen. Um, what was the,
4: su- What's the best moment? Yeah. Since? Or what surprised you since oh, then?
5: I don't know. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that one. I guess. That's right. What was surprising was just how nice everyone <laughs> is. I don't know. I mean, it's not that surprising. It was really great to like meet the cohorts yeah. and um, meet my nominator, Jason Watt, He was so mm. kind. Uh, so not necessarily a surprise, but lived up to all of my hopes.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I also ignored the call. <laughs> um, and then when I saw that it was my phone was ringing a third time from the same yeah. number, I picked it up. And I never felt dizzy to the point where I had to sit down and like, you know, ground myself. And my, my heart was just pounding so hard uh, as Ruth was talking to me. <laughs> And likewise, I I had to keep asking myself, is this real? Even until the announcement went live um, on social media, up until I went to the ceremony and I standing with everyone, I was like, is this real? Um, (laughs) And yeah, it's been the best thing that's happened to me, um, and really. Such a huge honor to to be here and alongside these amazing writers. And what's surprising is you know where your work will take you, and that we're here in Miami with all of you. It's it's such a thing to be grateful for, and I'm thankful for all of you.
2: I picked up the phone call because (laughs) (laughs) I. Because I'm so compulsive, I'm one of those people who picks up all the spam calls. I just can't <laughs> help myself. Um, but I was shocked, and I remember having to ask you to repeat your name. I was just like, "Who are you?" <laughs> because um, I don't know. Part of me thought it was a prank. Did you think that? <laughs> I thought I, it was a maybe joke. because well,
5: my book came out in 2020. Yes, so Alexandra. Like,
2: right, <laughs> and my novel came out in 2018. Uh, so it had been four years mm-hmm. right uh, so I didn't even know that I guess the the it's five years yeah, that no, you're eligible good, but good. Yeah. I didn't know that so I had not thought that I it wasn't even on my radar so mm-hmm. I was shocked and I think um, something that I'm so grateful for is that books have such long lives and even though the novel came out in 2018 to ha- receive this honor four years later m- made me feel like um yeah, literature lives on beyond us and connects us with so many people and that's that's a beautiful reminder. Yeah.
3: No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't pick up the call, and I also didn't check the voicemail. <laughs> honestly, it wasn't until my, my I guess my the pu- my publisher knew before I did, and my editor finally was like texting me and was like, "Hey, have you gotten any voicemails today?" <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she wanted to talk to me about it. Um, and then I listened to the voicemail and then I started texting her like is this real is this a prank I also had COVID and (laughs) also we
5: all we got it at AWP
3: we yeah we yeah yeah, we both got it at the same conference Mm -hmm. and um so I was also like I must be hallucinating this must be a this must be a new symptom what is this (laughs) (laughs) this is the award variant (laughs) I don't know um and Mm -hmm. in some ways it kind of still doesn't feel real to me um Mm -hmm. but i think maybe the most surprising part of it is that i feel like it's made the world feel like bigger but also more intimate in a way like i'm just Mm -hmm. getting to hang out with you guys these last few days and just getting to meet so many people these opportunities that i wouldn't have had before
1: Mm
3: -hmm.
4: it's literally one of the best days of my job is the day i get to make (laughs) those phone calls it's so fun Um, I got to go along on the school visit today and hear Alexandra talk with students, and one of the questions they asked her about was including her elements of life in work, and I thought your answer was so interesting, and I'd love to hear from each of you. How do you navigate including things from your life or not including elements from your life in your fiction?
5: I do not remember what I said (laughs) to (laughs) the students. It was probably very much more (laughs) eloquent than I it's getting late in the night. My book is pretty blatantly autobiographical. Uh, So the character does follow, she shares a lot of biographical details uh, with me and the moves that she makes and many of her concerns are ones that I've had. Uh, But for me, a lot of the fiction comes in really at the sentence level, at the scene level and in the writing and the writing is so different from the lived experience. I wanna capture a truth, but in many ways, it's kind of like what Crystal was saying. We're translating experiences, um, but we're not, at least personally, I don't feel constrained by fact when I'm writing fiction. For me, truth is separate from fact, especially emotional truths uh, that I was trying to explore in this book. So when I'm writing, I guess I, f- I follow the sentence and I follow the language and the scene more than wanting to, I guess, imprint my lived experience on it. <laughs> <laughs> now I will stare at you three. I
2: for answers. Um, I have yet to write present day characters because I think I'm, um, there's something difficult about writing something that's even remotely autobiographical. I find that I need to hide under history. And I I think that as a writer, I'm somebody who's driven by questions and by looking back at what has happened in the past in order to understand who I am and what society is, uh, why the society is the way it is. So I, I use that veil, but still there's so much of me in this book because it's my preoccupations about womanhood, motherhood, my questions about intergenerational trauma, my questions about truth and, and the choices that we are able to make or not. So it's the themes are all from me, but I think I gravitate towards uh, historical events or the past. To give me a, a bit of a gap right uh to make it easier because i find it really hard to write present-day
3: characters for some music. Yeah. yeah i guess i can go next i yeah i feel like a little bit of both i guess it's i find that the feeling ends up being very much me or it's like being very pulled from my life without me kind of even realizing it like i sort of do the first draft and I, I kind of have to trick myself and put myself into almost a trance state mm-hmm. um, and part of that is sort of sometimes throwing kind of bio what I think of as biographical wrenches into the fiction like um, like just for example now like I'm working on a project and like the character I'm from Iowa and I made the character from Nebraska because I just like had to throw this sort of wrench in it mm-hmm. into it to get this sort of distance mm-hmm. in order to kind of fill it with um the sort of real like kind of spark that feels alive um but the parts uh, i kind of find myself being surprised by how much of myself i end up ends up in in the fiction that was almost unintended almost like accidental um so i guess i'm not intentional about it i guess (laughs) i'm kind of just a little haphazard and messy
1: Yeah, um, I feel the same way. Um, when I wrote this novel, it was pulling me in all different directions. And in a way that I wanted the characters to be more real to me than, and knowable um, than you know, some of my closest family members who aren't so willing to share their stories with me or to talk at length about themselves. Um, and. And I didn't grow up in a traditional nuclear family household, so writing this family and writing scenes of them together was a kind of balm for me, and also made me re, uh, remember and feel nostalgic for uh, community and times when we were able to come together, uh, because so much of um, so many stories about Korean diaspora are about separation. Uh, but so too are they about reunion and coming together. And the novel became a space where I could honor the different personalities and influences of my loved ones and to have them all highlighted in a single place. Thank you all.